Hey, it's Brian. This week's episode was recorded two weeks ago, just before the protests against police brutality began in cities across the country. It's a fun episode, and I really do think you'll enjoy it. But I wanted to say a few things before it starts. First of all, to be unequivocally clear, black lives matter. But words are meaningless without action, and the fact is that out of 126 episodes of this podcast, only 12 have featured black writers. That is shameful, that is wrong, I'm embarrassed by this, and I'm sorry. I promise to all of you that I'm going to do better. You will hear more. Thanks. This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week, Amber Healy and I talk about Canadian rock bands of the 1990s. It is always, always a pleasure to have a fellow uh, Doc Simpson student uh, on the podcast, especially after having him on just a few oh, weeks ago. When did So what did you, classes did you take with him at Bonaventure? I took, I want to say, three poetry classes from him. Okay. Um, the last of which was during my senior year. Uh, famously, in my mind, I went to uh, Denny Wilkins and Dean at the time, Lee Coppola, and said, you know, um, I want to skip media ethics to take one of Doc Simpson's poetry classes. And they said, hmm, Doc Simpson? I said, yeah, he wasn't going to teach this semester, but now he is. Well, we can't compete with that. And <laughs> I took his class instead. That's not, which uh, which uh, poetry writing class was that? Was that poetry writing? Was it romantics? Oh, geez. It may have been writing. Okay. It may have been poetry writing. Um, and one of the most... One of the strongest memories from that class is the person who um, whose name was on the list in front of me. His name was um, Robert Hammer. And every single week for the first, I don't know, month or two, maybe three, when he would go through and do attendance, it was always Bobby Hammer, Amber Healy. And he would stop. And he would say, listen to that. That is jazz right there. That is music. Bobby Hammer, Amber Healing. It's like, oh my God, every week. And it was just, it was so adorable mm-hmm. in a way that Doc Simpson can, only Doc Simpson can be. Right. So what, what for you, I mean, I did a whole podcast with him, so you can hear why I think he's great. But for you and, and why, what made him one of those professors? I think it was just how obviously enraptured he was with what he was talking about. I love, and he told you this, that he didn't fall into poetry until, quote unquote, later in life. Um, But it just, it consumed him and he loved it so much. And that energy and enthusiasm was so easy to reflect when you have a teacher who is so committed and so passionate about what they're talking about and what they're teaching. Um, It's very easy to get sort of swept up in that. And it was just, it was a delight. And I wanted to take every class from him that I could. It was funny. The, uh, I interned in high school with a, a Bonaventure graduate. Um, and he said the one class I had to take, I was at a radio station, and the one class I had to take no matter what was Romantics with Doc Simpson. And so I went in there as a freshman knowing I had to take that. No matter what happened, I had to take that course. <laughs> and that was one of three that I took with him. And you're right. I mean, he's he does what the best teachers all do, which I, you know, I hope I capture a second of, uh, a splinter of, which is that that passion you have for the subject material not just the students and not just like the course but like you really care about this stuff like this matters to you like dr martini at bonaventure was another guy who was like that who you know you just you you, like it matters like not just that Mm -hmm. they that that they get the lesson done or that you learn but that you get that 
what they're teaching is their passion and it's like what they care about. And like that, whether, whether you end up caring about it or not, that's just, there's a total respect. I think you have for a teacher who just brings themselves and that, that energy to their lessons and to their class. The downside of that um, is once you've had a teacher that you know is passionate, that you can see is really, you know, geeked out about what they're talking about. They're really enthralled. They're really energetic and they care about what they're teaching. It makes it so much easier to find the ones, to find the ones that don't and you tune them out almost instantly because you know the difference. You can tell the difference within the first probably class or two because they might fake it the first time to try to keep people interested. But it's it's so it's such a huge difference between someone who can I swear a little bit or no? Go ahead, yeah. Someone who gives a damn and someone who doesn't. Right. That's a little minor swearing compared to this, oh, this I, podcast. Well, I'm trying to be nice. I don't know. <laughs> that was good. No, that was fine. Uh, speaking of, and, and in terms of passionate uh, topics, I mean, basically we're here to talk Canadian rock from the nineties and two thousands. So um, Nothing I mean, this is going to go, this is going to go deep into CanCon rock nerdery here. Um, we'll get to writing at some point. Um, but uh, so what was your, um introduction to i want to say genre of music i was thinking about this uh because it's like none of all of these bands who were popular in canada and and border towns like buffalo where we're from uh Mm -hmm. in the late nine in mid to late 90s and early 2000s like there's not a sound to them like it's not like seattle sound where it's like you had that sub pop sound and it was very similar similar sounding bands throughout or at least kind of like a connective tissue to it like Mm -hmm. My two favorite bands were Our Lady Peace and the Hip, and they're nothing alike. Like they have no. guitars. That's about it. So, I, yet, I, go ahead. I think there is. I think there is a commonality to it. Okay. Um, there is. There's a genuineness that you don't find in other places. And this is going to be someone's going to ding me on this. And you know what? I don't even care. I know who I am at this point in my life when it comes to our musical fandom, and I am a blind devotee of Canadian bands. It's it's not even a secret. There is a genuineness, there is a compassion, there is a camaraderie that you do find in Seattle bands, but you also find in Canadian bands. How many times have band members gone back and forth and back and forth, whether to sit in with somebody or to replace somebody who had to be out for a while? Look at the situation with Billy Talent. Their drummer is currently out um, dealing with MS, and he had a flare-up, and during the last tour, this is a couple of years ago, he had to step aside another drummer from another Canadian band stepped up to fill in for him, making it very clear that when the other guy is ready to come back, if he can, the kit's his. Mm -hmm. And there's that brotherhood. And I'm going to say brotherhood again, somebody's going to ding me and it's fine. um, Where you have the support of your peers in such a dramatic way, in such a big way that if that's the only commonality in it, they all play nice with each other in a lot of ways. Like there's not a whole lot of inter-band fighting like you see in other places with the, of course, Neil Young exception, blah, 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 ancient history. Um, but there's a, there's a, God, this is cheese ball. There's a raw Canadianness among Canadian musicians, not about the country, but about supporting each other in their art. Right. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, Neil Young and uh, and Matthew Good, notwithstanding, um, those are the yeah, two. No, and, and, but yeah. and those are, and, and it's notable that they're outliers of like mm-hmm. the, the people who are kind of loudly. I don't want to say complete a-holes, but kind of, or just, you know, not in that, in that vein. So, so what was your entree into, into this musical world? Well, um, on my own or the way someone else introduced me? Uh, whatever came first. Okay. So when I was a kid, 
my mom and I lived with um, her parents in Appleton, you know, Niagara County, woohoo. And um, we, this was, you know, early 80s. So we didn't have cable or anything. We would watch uh, Video Hits Live nice. um, on, I can't remember if it was CTV or CBC, but it was every week. And it was exactly that. It was like one of the first um, shows that played music videos back in the day. And I remember watching the video, God, I'm old, for uh, Sunglasses at Night. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm ancient. <laughs> and thinking it was so cool. And of course, either before or after that was uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean with the light up uh, sidewalk. Right. How can you not love that as a kid, like mm-hmm. a little kid? Um, so I joke with my mom that watching that show which was her doing is why I fell in love with Canadian music at the age of like five. Okay. Um, yeah. Corey Hart and uh, Brian Adams, who else would have been big at the time? Maybe like the last legs of like Loverboy. I mean, Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot flaring up every now Gordon and then Lightfoot there. Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, given that we grew up here, we have the, the gift of having access to Canadian radio stations like people in Southern Ontario have access to our TV stations. Right. They will talk about growing up watching Tom Rick and Irv on channel seven and rocket ship seven and all of that. And we grew up listening to 97.7 and 102.1, 102.7, all of the great stations just across the border. Um, you want to talk about the free and open trade of ideas and products. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Right. Um, and well, yeah, 102.1 was was it for me. So originally it was my older sister, who's four years older than me, went to Bonaventure as well. And mm-hmm. she got in. So, you know, she got in. She was in that uh, 91 to 95 era. And so um, Lois the Low was her big band. Oh. And so that was my kind of introduction oh, yeah. to that. Um, but then I just I kind of came to it on my own when um so this is a really crazy story, not crazy, just weird, but I was delivering, I was a pizza delivery boy in high school. That was my job that, that year. And so I always listened to CFNY 102.1. Is it, is it the edge? Mm-hmm. I'm far enough away that I don't get it anymore. What is All three it? are fine. All three okay. are fine. All three. Ro- okay. Um, so I listened to 102.1, uh, which was the, the alternative rock station and slightly different than 97.7 uh which was a little bit more hard rocky mm-hmm. and uh 102.1 was a little more alternative um true. and um and so i would listen when i was doing my deliveries and i always made sure to listen to they used to have a countdown show the thursday 30 which thursday was the top the, yes yeah. the thir- the top 30 alternative tracks of the week and that's kind of i i would make myself listen to it not make myself but like i want to know what's new and hap- what's new in music that was the mm-hmm. place to listen to and so that yeah. was my entree and then i discovered the hip and that was the year that day for night came out which is still my favorite uh, album yeah. of all time and and i was hooked on it so okay With the caveat, obviously, that the music that you liked in high school and like early in college is kind of like your music forever, right? We know this. But what is it? What what is it to you about that era of music that's so lasting and so special beyond that kind of just usual high school music ties? That's a great question, and I don't know that I have an answer worthy of it. Um, It's it is all that nostalgia for easier times, for simpler times. Um, mm-hmm. I remember driving to school with my best friend and, you know, it was always on 1021 and, you know, singing 
the headstone smile and wave at the top of my lungs on the way to work, on the way to school or um, cubically contained, which is still probably my favorite headstone song. Um, listening to moist driving around mm-hmm. on Saturday nights, listening to, you know, Oh, club 102. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that was what we did. We drove around and listened to music or we sat around and listened to music and that's what it was. And for whatever reason, the Canadian stuff just always hit me differently don't get me wrong. I'm, I was a teenager in the nineties. So obviously the Seattle stuff is very important to me. Um, I took a solo trip out to Seattle two years ago and just spent like three days walking around for the heck of it, you know? Um, and it was a blast and I want to do it again, but you know, none of us can move right now, but there's something about, there's something about Canadian music and the way it sounds and the way it feels when you listen to it and it speaks to you. For, for those of us who grew up in border towns in particular, it's for the American side of us. It's, it's our little secret. Right. All of these incredible bands that are right there, right there. I drive under the peace bridge on my way to work, or I, I used to, I'm in the process of changing jobs and I haven't started on campus at my new job because you know, Corona, but I drive under the peace bridge all the time and it's right there. I say good morning to Canada and I say good night to Canada. <laughs> um, my friends know this. They're not going to be surprised. But like, it's, it's just something that, I don't know. We have this relationship. We have this stupid, dorky, cheeseball, sappy, nostalgic relationship where we look at them and they are our friends and we are their friends. And that's just it. Mm-hmm. Lois and Will is a great example of that, by the way, especially for Buffalo people. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. I feel like um, for me, it was always like so... Buffalo, to its credit, is having an incredible resurgence econo- mm-hmm. well, economically until coronavirus. But the doing better downtown is something now. The waterfront is amazing. There's a cultural renaissance of food. Like, like Buffalo is a really amazing place right now. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Every time I go back, we live in Rochester right now. But every time we go back, it's like this was not like this when I was growing up. Right. This is staggering. And so in the mid 90s and, and Buffalo was not like some wasteland but it was very much not what it is now and like to have toronto be like an hour and a half away and toronto right was going through such a boom in the in the mid to late 90s you know i became a leafs fan at that time because that's when they were really good and sure. it was, i i know right um but it was all of this uh it was this this, this felt like uh this weird amazing mystical city just up north and that we had access to and it was it was like toronto was like and the whole scene it felt like the cooler older brother that you could hang out with again you say totally cheesy but it it absolutely is as i think back on that like that's what it was that's what it was like no you're absolutely right it's also way less scary than new york city and so much closer right Right. Um, I remember going with my my best friend and a girl that I was friends with in high school. We went to see Radiohead at Maple Leaf Gardens on Easter Sunday, 1998. This would have been uh, the second wave of the OK Computer Tour. On a, and I just remember the three of us drove up. I was 18. My best friend was 18. Our other friend was 19. And we just went over across the border. Like, we weren't, we didn't think twice about it. Our parents didn't freak out about it. It wasn't a big, scary thing. Oh, be safe, blah, 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 whatever. It was just like, oh, okay, well, do you know how to get there? Here's a map. Have fun. Mm-hmm. Do you have any Canadian cash on you? Like, it wasn't a thing. It was just, oh, sure, you're going to Toronto. Right. Which is right. what people did. 
Yeah. yeah, I um I remember once going to a crossing the border in Niagara Falls to go to a record store to try to buy concert tickets. And that was it. Like cross oh, the border, man. go to try on concert tickets. Yeah. Was there 10 minutes because they it was I think it was a holiday or something. But anyway, the ticket, I don't know if it was ticket, whatever the ticket outlet wasn't open, mm-hmm. drove right back. Like that was it. Like it's crazy. It. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Do, yeah. Um, so you the, now refresh my memory. You lived and worked in Toronto a little bit, right? No, okay. um, I work for Toronto-based stuff. Okay. Is the easy way of putting it. Gotcha. Um, and to sort of dovetail this together, the Buffalo Renaissance, in part coupled with my brother and sister and best friends all having kids, is part of what brought me back home Okay, after being gone for like 10 years. But I had, in the meantime, started writing for first for the uh, Geeks and Beats podcast, which is Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth um, every Sunday. And I was living, (laughs) you want a story? I was living in Maryland, um, just started to work at NASA. And I was listening to Ongoing History. It had just come back on and they were talking about Dave Grohl, who grew up in Springfield, Virginia, which is a town that I had covered when I worked at a newspaper down there. And I emailed in and I'm like, hey, this is cool. I happen to live about 45 minutes from Springfield. So if you ever need somebody to write for geeks and beats about, you know, DC based stuff, like, let me know. I'm here. Did not expect to hear anything. Later that night, I got an email from Michael. Absolutely. We need somebody to write about DC based nonsense. Let me think it over. I'll get back to you. (laughs) What, what the hell is this? The next morning I got another email from him and they asked me to start writing about net neutrality. And that's how I started writing for Geeks and Beats. Nice. Um, That went away for a little while in early 2016, right as I moved home. Um, So I emailed, I emailed Alan and I'm like, listen, you guys gave me the bug. I want to keep writing about music and pop culture and stuff. Can I write for a journal of musical things? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, let's go. And so I've been writing for him since then, since February of 2016 um geeks and beats was revived so i'm still writing for them as well i'm doing a story in a couple of weeks on the anniversary of the first woman going into space which was a uh, female cosmonaut but I've, I've been doing this for a few years now and it's it's the most fun so before we get to the specific writing let's let, yes. let's scale back for a second because you're <laughs> you're talking about emailing alan cross and we're and, and writing for him for those of yes. you for those of everyone listening which is everybody but me and you Describe what that means, what Alan Cross means in terms of the pantheon of this musical life. Alan Cross is any Western New York and Southern Ontario music fan with a radio music nerd junkies hero. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty decent way of summing it up, right? Oh, totally. Um, Yeah. He tells the story that 102 came to him in early 93 and said, you know, there's this, there's this grunge thing happening out in Seattle. What's that about? You should, you should, you should do something about it. You should do an hour long show explaining it. And long story short, it's been, well, it's now 2020. (laughs) Uh, And with the exception of a couple of years, he's been doing the show, you know, more or less every Sunday night since then, Sunday night, seven o'clock. The, ongo- the ongoing history of new music it's worth exactly. finding it's yeah so good yeah. 
and it's on it is on podcast now they're they're working on the back issues the only problem is copyright law and royalties prevent them from actually including the music in there but sure the the interviews are great because you get the full interview just minus the song but you know what the songs are from the conversation okay so i mean what what's that translate what's that kind of transition been like not just you know writing for someone you used to listen to and you know probably Mm -hmm. idolized to some extent um, I have a great Alan Cross story too. I'll get to in a second. But now you're all these bands and the scene that you were a fan of, and now kind of writing about it journalistically and for mm-hmm. and podcast form. So what's that transition like from kind of like fan to writer of it, um, blogger, journalist, however you kind of conceive the role? Honestly, they let me write about more or less whatever I want. Um, I have interviewed at least a couple of bands that I'm just blatantly like big starry eyed fans of. And it's, I don't hide it. People know, people know that this is, you know, I wrote like a 1500 word story on uh, the new Casador album that came out last fall after interviewing all the guys separately and some of them together. And I've done it like twice now. And it's no secret that like I've, I've hung out with these guys. You know, like I I met them when they first played a show here in Buffalo in early 2017. Um, I've traveled to see them. I had a friend in Virginia go see them when they played down there back in January. Um, They're they're good guys. I'm blatantly biased in favor of Casador. That's Mm -hmm. just not anything I've ever hidden. Um, They've never pulled me back on anything. They've also tapped me as like the girl writer on one, like only one or two occasions to be like, this messed up thing going on in the music industry we would really like a female perspective on it can you write something um and that's great you know i mean i I never want to be like oh she's the girl right but i'm also the girl who can kick ass and write stuff so sure i'll take it um the hardest thing as a music fan and as a writer was when um gordani passed away Mm -hmm. um they we were it was so it was that summer that that summer of uh, 2017 and my friend Vanessa who is the producer of Geeks and Beats emailed me and they're like listen Gord isn't doing well and Michael and Alan talked about it and they want you to write the obit oh my goodness yeah so uh, I freaked out a little bit and then I wrote the first sentence and burst into tears and called Vanessa who lives in Scarborough <laughs> and we cried together for a few minutes and she's like listen take your time it's Take your time. We just want to make sure that we're ready. It's right. not happening like today. We just want to make sure that we're ready. And I did the best job that I could. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly hard. And when that morning came, a couple of months later, um, I called Vanessa and she answered the phone with, is it time? Oh. And I said, yeah. And we cried together and then we published it. And yeah. it ran on Geeks and Beats. It ran on... Alan took it for a journal of musical things and published it there. It may have gone somewhere else too, but it was just, I could not have written that in the moment. Right. There's absolutely no way. Um, but I was also really glad that it was my byline on it. The the American writing the, the obit for a Canadian website on this legend. Right. So right. humbling. And uh, yeah. So um, question. what's that? I think that answers your question. That's close enough. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, first of all, you wrote for, you worked for NASA. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about that. 
Um, I work for a publication called Spinoff. That's a great name for a NASA publication, by the way. Oh, it fits it perfectly. So (laughs) it is um, this book that comes out every year that NASA is the only government agency that has to justify how it spends its money to Congress. Okay. Which is really messed up. But they put together this book every year. Um, and it's delivered to every member of Congress, every member of the Senate and the House, um, other leaders, people on committees. Um, copies go to are made available as like PDFs to teachers if they want to use it as a teaching tool. Um, and it talks about technologies and products that have some footprint with NASA. Either NASA needed something and contracted a civilian company to help them make it. Or NASA developed something and a civilian company was like, hey, we can use this for this different application that is then commercially available. And it's awesome and beautiful and like 400 pages and it was like 30 articles a year. I was one of a team of like four people who worked on it. It was really nifty. Um, And that's based at uh, Goddard in Maryland. Okay. Um, And you mentioned uh, writing for uh, podcasts as well. And I'm interested in that just because, you know, I think there's a perception that, you know, podcasts are a couple of white guys extemporaneously talking, you know, raising my hand guilty here because that's (laughs) literally what I do. Um, So when you talk about writing for podcasts and writing podcasts, can you talk about what that what goes into that? And are you writing? Are they like radio scripts? Are they kind of what are they looking for? What, what What does that look like? So I write every week the summary for the episode for um, It's All Journalism, which is a podcast that my old boss, Michael Connell, started back in 2012 as he was going through the, um, Mike, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of the program, but it was a like a integrated multimedia course at American University um, down in DC. And so what I do is he sends me, Mike sends me the audio every week and I listen to it. Uh, basically transcribe the interview as it's going on, focusing more on the responses than the questions. And I write a summary of at least that part of the conversation to go along with the audio. It's, it's not like a trans, it's not a full transcript. I try to plot a couple of good quotes um, and provide context for the conversation to make people want to listen. I never listen to the whole thing unless it's the greatest thing I've ever heard, because otherwise I would have like a, a thousand word summary. And I try to keep it to like, Four fifty five hundred. So I promised you an Alan Cross story, and this is great. Yes, so did. on my uh, so my freshman year at Bonas, I I started and I had I was doing a radio show at uh, what was then WSBU. It's still WSBU, but it was it not is. known as the Buzz. It was just known as uh, as Bonas Best Rock. And I and I emailed Alan Cross at, at the Edge uh, for advice on on being uh, doing what he does and doing what you know be basically becoming the next him, and uh, not knowing what I would get. And this is 1995, 1996, so email is okay. very new. I got no joke a three page email of him, from him <laughs> with advice. Um, and now thinking back on it, I'm sure he just had it saved and it was like his you know blanket thing that he sent to everybody who asked for advice but i like to think that he wrote it uh uh wholly for me i still have it somewhere in my office in my of in, in, on campus which doesn't serve me any good right now but and it's printed out on like a dot matrix printer because again yeah. 1995 but it was great it was like reading two newspapers a day all the trade magazines all the music magazines uh it was just fantastic i mean advice that i think still stands yeah. 25 years later yeah oh absolutely and the first, I can't remember what it was about, but the first email that I got from him to me, like, hey, that was a great article or something, I almost fell over. 
right? This is, again, this is this is our hero. This right. is the guy who we all kind of want to be. And I've I've been told by other people, my friend Vanessa included, who have worked with him, that like Alan understands that people are like, oh my god, Alan Cross, right? When they meet him. Um, <laughs> not an exact impression but like he understands that people grew up listening to him and people listen to him and learn from him and have carried that with them for years and mm-hmm. you know people had you know have written to him saying that they used to tape ongoing history to go back and learn from it and to take notes which is wild mm-hmm. but i've i've only i've only met him in person once um that was like a year ago when he was doing his side door tour and came to Buffalo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like just at some guy's house here in Buffalo, um, off hurdle. <laughs> and it was like, Hey, Alan, it's Amber. Nice to meet you. Finally. He's like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? And on with the night, which is the best possible thing. Cause I don't think I could have handled, um, <laughs> anything more than that. Cause right. I'm still a complete fangirl, And that's not, again, not a surprise. I am who I am. Right. Geek out about things. It's fine. <laughs> um, okay, so we need to give the people some listening uh, stuff because they they yeah. are obviously not as deep in, in the Canadian rock as I am. I'm going to put in show notes. I think I shared this with you the other night. The uh, I made a the True North uh, yes, a Spotify playlist. It's an overview. It's got a lot, very heavy on the hip, heavy on the low, mm-hmm. low heavy on mm-hmm. Our Lady Peace. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with Spotify, I found, is that a lot of the bands from that era are not on probably American Spotify. Um, so, like, there's only one yeah. I'm Mother Earth song, which is a tragedy. Um, there's no um, Killjoys, which is just awful. Um, I'm Mother Earth was one more astronaut, which, okay, that's okay. the one that's going to be on there. But I was looking yeah, for some more. With Raspberry or yeah, like, Raspberry was the one I was looking for. Um, yep. Yeah, and the Killjoys were just such a great little pop, you know, three piece pop punk band. Just Mm -hmm. two and a half minute songs that are great. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, I will put this in there. So do you, can you give the people some recommendations to listen to either old stuff, newer stuff that you're digging, just kind of, uh, kind of give them a little taste of, of, of this stuff. Uh, I have recently fallen back in love with the odds. Oh, so good. If you want want to stick with the, with the nineties, you can't go wrong with our lady piece, the watchmen. Yes. Oh man. Mm -hmm. You got to have the watchmen in there. Um, Largely known to be a one-hit wonder, but wasn't is uh, the band um, Glue Leg. Okay, yeah. Um, oh my god! See, this is this is the problem. I always blank on these great questions <laughs> where I have like thirty thousand things I could say. Can't go wrong with the Bare Naked Ladies at summertime. I, I believe your playlist has Sloan on it, which yes, yes absolutely underscore. Throw Matt Good in there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the Tea Party and Moist and the Headstones and Big Rack. Oh my god, Big Rack definitely. <laughs> Um, and I'm not just thinking of the four of them as a group because they announced the postponement of their show at Art Park today until next year, which sucks. Uh-huh. Um, if you're looking for newer bands like this century, <laughs> um, you, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Arpels. Mm-hmm. Uh, July Talk, Metric, Mother Mother, um, My Boys in Casador, of course. Uh, what else do I have over there? Let's go with Lowest of the Low and also uh, Ron Hawkins and either the Do Good Assassins or... He had an, the Rusty Nails. Yes. Oh, the Rusty Nails. I wa- Rusty Nails. Saw, spent many a night at the Buffalo Nickel Lounge watching there you the go. Rusty Nails play. Um, um, Hot Hot Heat, Hawksley Workman, Donovan Woods. Um, yeah, that's a whole lot of mm-hmm. stuff right there. Oh, Dan Mangan. Dan Mangan. Yes. 
because I'm in love with him right now. He's incredible. And he does these Saturday afternoon shows from his basement via Side Door, which is a, a cool music artist thing that he co-founded a year-ish plus ago. Um, and it's like four, like a $6 Canadian ticket. So it's four bucks for me. And it's an hour of him playing songs and talking and it's on Zoom. So like you see all the people oh, that are watching the show with you and it's beautiful and it's heartwarming and he plays his song basket and I have to be off camera or cause I'm sobbing and it gets me every single time. <laughs> all right. Um, so we have, we have musical <laughs> recommendations. That'll keep somebody busy for that. Yeah. That's a good start. Um, what about, so I ask everybody I have on the podcast mm-hmm. this, so I'll ask you, what's the best thing that you've read lately? I have two contenders. All right. And I have them sitting in front of me because I don't want to mess them up. Um, I finished reading How to Be a Person in the World by, I'm so sorry for getting her last name wrong, Heather Haverleski. Okay. Which is fantastic. It's a collection of, it's it's her Ask Polly column. Where oh, right. Them, yeah. And it's great. And reading it during the first part of like my, I was off work between jobs for a few weeks once I left my last job before I started my new one, unintentionally. Like it just... Corona. And I read that book in that time and it, it still has me thinking about things in new ways, which is wonderful. Um, and I'm not quite in the middle of reading any night of the week by Johnny Dovercourt, which is the subtitle is a DIY history of Toronto music from 1957 to 2001. Well, that's appropriate. Right. All right. Amber, this has been great. So you did great. You did fantastic. (laughs) This has been really fun. Fit right in. All right. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Other 51. Show notes for this and all of our episodes can be found at sportsmediaguide.com by clicking on The Other 51 tab. If you like the show, please consider giving it a rating and a review, either at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 